Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this show, activists in and around D.C. and traveling to D.C. prepare to counter a rally by Nazis, Ku Klux Klan, and other fascist groups. I think it's important to kind of point out like how these people are just twisting reality and duping others uh, into the sense of victimization of, of white men in the society uh, when they really are just delivering hate and terror to all communities. The so-called Unite the Right to rally is occurring after Black Lives Matter organizations around the country held their annual Night Out for Safety and Liberation. We'll hear voices from the D.C. event. I think what we're talking about when we talk about public safety is being able to look at one another and see one another as 100% deserving of food, water, shelter, education. And then what are we going to do to make sure we do that? All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, Friday, August 10th, begins two days of counter-protests against the Unite the Right to rally planned for Sunday, August 12th, in front of the White House. The rally by neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other right-wing organizations is marking one year since their first rally of unity held in Charlottesville, Virginia, during which they attacked anti-fascist and anti-racist demonstrators over two days, killing activist Heather Heyer and injuring dozens more. A broad coalition of left, progressive, and faith organizations is taking part in this weekend's counter-demonstrations. The Shut It Down D.C. Coalition is meeting August 12th at noon at Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. and will march to Lafayette Square, where it will meet up with the Answer Coalition, which is staging a counter-protest in the same park where the neo-Nazis will gather. The Movement for Black Lives is assembling at 16th and I at 2 p.m. and then also marching to Lafayette Park. April Goggins, core organizer for Black Lives Matter D.C., said that it is vital that the African-American community of D.C. be centered in the fight against fascism. D.C. has a history of chasing the Klan white supremacists out, you know, out of D.C. in 1982. That's exactly what they did. And I think for us it's really important to recapture and revisit history of black D.C. that's often forgotten because there was a reason that happened, right? It was about self-determination. This is about self-determination, saying, like, we haven't given up the self-determination to determine what happens to us in our city. More information about the counter-protests is at shutitdowndc.org. That's shutitdowndc.org and also at answercoalition.org, answercoalition.org. More on the counter-protests later in the show. These protests are occurring as black activists in D.C. and around the country are celebrating Black August and reflecting on important August dates in black history to inform today's struggles. Chantel James attended a film screening this week and filed this report. Tuesday night at Emergence Community Arts Collective, the National Black United Front hosted a screening of the film COINTELPRO 101 as part of its ongoing film series. 
The film gave a history of the government program, which had its origins in the attempt to infiltrate the Puerto Rican independence movement, and evolved into a campaign that illegally targeted members of the Black radical left during the height of the Black Power movement. Before the film, Prince Chinidu Chuku Makueri, a royal among Nigeria's Igbo people, gave some remarks on the occasion of his birthday and his visit to the U.S. Ada Anago Brown, president of Roots to Glory, also spoke of the need for Africans of the diaspora to return to the continent. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. On Tuesday, criminal justice reform advocate Wesley Bell unseated Bob McCullough in the Democratic primary for the St. Louis County prosecutor's seat. McCullough is the prosecutor responsible for overseeing the infamous grand jury proceedings that resulted in the non-indictment of Officer Darren Wilson and the killing of Ferguson teenager Michael Brown four years ago this week in August 2014. This is Wesley Bell speaking to a local TV station on the night of his win. But I know it's bigger than me. This is about change that will, that, again, that will not only affect North County, but South County, West County, Mid County. I mean, we've got to start working on bringing this, this region together. In a blog post for the ACLU, Frank Leon Roberts said that many of the positions that Bell campaigned on have been central issues of concern for local organizers in Ferguson for years following the death of Brown. He gives special credit to Action St. Louis, a black millennial-led organization co-founded by activist Kayla Reed in 2014, which ran the campaigns hashtag WokeVoterSTL and hashtag ByBob. Ryan Grimm and, and Ada Chavez of The Intercept wrote this week that labor unions spent heavily in an effort to re-elect prosecutor Bob McCullough. They write that while it is common for police unions to support prosecutors, the labor groups who backed McCullough came from the trade union movement. Grimm and Chavez say that the union's support for McCullough is part of an emerging pattern, quote, as a new Democratic insurgency has risen over the last year, unions have clung tightly to the old guard. In New York, they sided with Representative Joe Crowley over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and with Governor Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. In climate and environmental news, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke is under fire for writing an op-ed that blames environmentalists for the ongoing infernos in California as a way to push the business interests of logging companies and other extractive industries. Also in a major victory for public health, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled on Thursday the Trump administration illegally blocked a ban on chlorpyrifos, a pesticide leaked to brain development, delays in children and nervous systems issues for all people and animals. And Judge Jed Rakoff, ordered that the pesticide be outlawed within 60 days. And after a vote by the Baltimore City Council this week, Baltimore could become the first city in the country to amend its charter to prohibit the sale and lease of its water and sewer system. Water privatization has become a highly contentious issue in Baltimore for several years as multiple corporations have expressed interest in the city's water system. 
A Food and Water Watch survey of the 500 largest water systems found that for-profit providers charge 59% more than local governments charge for the same amount of water. This is a particular concern for Baltimore as it grapples with existing water affordability challenges. A study by independent consultant Roger Colton found that water bills will become unaffordable for households in more than half the city by 2019. In culture and media, D.C. Poor People's Campaign Justice Arts Movement is holding a jam session with an open mic Sunday, August 12th, 5 to 7 p.m. at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ, 5301 North Capitol Street in Northeast Washington. In movie theaters, the Boots Raleigh satire, Sorry to Bother You, has emerged as an indie summer hit. And on the small screens, you can check out the powerful new Frontline ProPublica documentary documenting hate Charlottesville on TV. Check your local listings or watch it online at pbs.org. Now it's time for our weekly look outside the borders of the United States with the prolific author Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, there's lots happening this week, this week with fresh sanctions being slapped on Russia, as well as there being sanctions on Iran. So what's your take on this ratcheting up of tensions from Capitol Hill and the White House? Well, first of all, with regard to Iran, recall that a few days ago, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo gave an alarming speech in Los Angeles, basically calling for regime change in Iran. This comes in the wake of the reality that there is an Iranian dissident group, the MEK, which many Iranians see as the domestic version of the Ku Klux Klan, but has been putting much money into the pockets of figures like Trump's lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, and his national security advisor, James Bolton, as well. Uh, Of late, the Iranian Navy has been engaged in military maneuvers in the Straits of Hormuz, and apparently the Iranians are suggesting that if stiffer sanctions are imposed in a few months, which Mr. Trump is promising, seeking to reduce Iran's uh, export of oil to zero, uh, then there will be no exports of oil from that part of the world, and presumably that will lead to a clash with Saudi Arabia, the key U.S. ally. And we already know that the United States has a military base in Bahrain, which is a stone's throw away from Iran. Likewise, sanctions have been tightened against Russia, According to one observer, these are the most draconian sanctions ever imposed by the United States since 1941, which sanctions were imposed on Japan. We all know how that ended. Interestingly enough, these new sanctions call for the United States to press Moscow to disgorge information about the income of Vladimir Putin, and I would hope that Congress would also somehow figure out a way to find out what Mr. Trump's tax returns suggests as they're going after Mr. Putin's income. In any case, uh, this is a very dangerous turn of events, and I think it also helps to underscore the need for alternative journalism. Uh, Listeners should know that a lot of my information 
on Russia and these sanctions uh, comes from Johnson's Russian list, which comes out of George Washington University. You can find it also on Facebook. And it's quite striking as well that the reporting on Mr. Trump's basic strategy, which we've been talking about on on the ground uh, for some weeks now, uh, has not been necessarily sketched in the mainstream U.S. press, speaking of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR, but it has been sketched, for example, in the Financial Times of London, uh, which points out, as we have been talking about for weeks now, that Mr. Trump is seeking a reverse Nixon-Kissinger maneuver of 1972, that is to say, uh, working with Moscow, he hopes and he thinks, against the interests of Beijing. It's also remarkable that the mainstream U.S. press basically does not report news that listeners need to know. I mean, for example, the forward, the Jewish Weekly, pointed out that the New York Times has been downplaying the neo-Nazi threat in the Ukraine, for example, in terms of U.S. policy there. And likewise, it's quite striking that the U.S. press, particularly New York Times, has been downplaying the bigotry of the man uh, Washington would like to see replace uh, Mr. Putin. I'm speaking of Alexei Navalny. I know we're going to run out of time really fast. Um, Speaking of U.S. allies, as you were, in terms of the U.K., Saudi Arabia uh, bombed a school bus in Yemen on Thursday, killing at least 43 people, most of them children and injuring at least 61 people. And this was done with bombs made here in the United States. And as you know, a bipartisan effort in the Senate that would have stopped our aid and weapons to Saudi Arabia was defeated earlier this year. So when you look at what's happening there, you know, what what do you think it'll take to end this, this genocide? Right now, you know, blood is on the hands of the U.S. and the U.K. in Yemen. That's the $64 question in terms of what it's going to take to stop this genocidal conflict in Yemen. Also, with regard to Saudi foreign policy, keep your eye on this crisis between Saudi Arabia and Canada after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made some rather simple critiques of Saudi human rights deficiencies, uh, which is no secret, but that has led to a rupture in Saudi-Canadian relations, what I find striking is that Washington might be behind this crisis because, as you know, there is a trade war that's going on between the United States and Canada. The Saudis are quite close to Mr. Trump. Remember, Saudi Arabia was the destination for one of his first foreign trips. And if there was good sense in the office of Prime Minister Trudeau, he might seek to raise the question of the Saudi intervention in Yemen in order to put the Saudis further on the defensive. But I'm afraid to say that, like in Washington and Ottawa, there is a kind of deficiency of common sense. Well, I've been speaking with Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst for On the Ground. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Yeah.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And on Tuesday, August 7th, I attended the Night Out for Safety and Liberation in D.C., a national event held as an alternative to the police-led National Night Out. For the organizers, the event is an opportunity to redefine and reimagine what public safety means. Too often, they say, conversations about public safety revolve around policing and punishment. But they want safety to be about more, like about having a living wage, healthy food, health care, affordable housing, education, and more. Here are some voices from D.C.'s Night Out for Safety and Liberation, held this year at the Maroon House in Northeast D.C. I think what we're talking about when we talk about public safety is being able to look at one another and see one another as 100% deserving of food, water, shelter, education, and then what are we gonna do to make sure we do that? My name is Glow Merriweather. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I just had a felony case dismissed, and it's amazing, it's amazing. Um, And it was for protesting, it was for being in the streets. I watched the police kill one of us. I've also seen us kill each other, but what I knew in the difference of those bullets was that one is fueled by racism and one is fueled by the need for survival. This is not just in our community, this is every community. Every community, the majority of the crimes are interracial. And to name that there is some kind of like black on black crime, which I think was being alluded to in this space, really doesn't tell a full story. It doesn't tell the truth about the bully above all of us that has their boot on our community's necks. And I really want to dispel that. And I want to say that I, I appreciate our kindred for speaking because where they're coming from is fear. They want to go home and be safe. And so does the next guy. And what I want to do is make sure that the entities that are truly stopping us, which are white supremacy, colonization, we need to be building with indigenous and immigrant communities all the time, right? Because all of our collective liberation is bound in this. So when black lives matter, all lives matter. And that's what we know. And that's what we're saying. And if it takes repeating it, if it takes not calling the police a couple times to show that child that their life mattered, maybe that's what it is and that's what I'm definitely willing to do and thank y'all for being here. Black lives do matter. I would like to take a moment to represent that black LGBT lives also matter. I am a transgender woman and the struggle is real. As a black community, we should embrace each other and understand that we all are more alike than different. No matter what our sexual preferences are or our sexual identities are, we are all human and we are all of the same race, Black Lives Matter. So my story comes from the struggle prostituting and stuff like that. I'm a reformal prostitute. Being a prostitute made me become a drug addict also. But today, by the grace of God, I'm a changed person. I think that it should be more hands reached out to the community to help one another because it is difficult for trans women to live their truth. 
especially when it comes to black trans women. Because if you don't have the white supremacists, you have the black people who discriminate against somebody who is different. And we need opportunities. We need doors to open. We need housing. We need jobs. And our lives matter. You know, I was told that I could not uh, move into an apartment building because I had an extensive criminal history. You know, all these new buildings that are coming up all over DC, and why is it that I cannot live somewhere? You know, does my life not matter because I have a criminal history and I'm a changed person now? Why does it not matter that I want to live too? Why does it not matter that I want to be a productive member of society? Why does it not matter because I'm black or because I'm trans? It should matter. All black lives matter. Thank you. I was reading the sign here, it says safety is solidarity. And if safety is solidarity to us, then we need to start to document what we see that's happening in our community to one another. When we see in the police pulling over one another, don't be in such a rush to walk by or drive by. Hesitate. Do you need to pull your camera out and video this? Do you need to contact some other networks to have them come down? Because I saw that happening in my community and the police asked me was I having a problem? And I wanted to say, do it look like I'm having a problem? <laughs> okay, I have a right to know, to know what's going on in my community. I saw them just pull up, they saw some young men, and I, was, I live on 17th Street, okay, in Northwest, and they pulled up because they saw a group of young black men standing out on a nice summer day, just standing around talking with one another. They were not drinking, they were not gambling, they were not cursing at one another, they were just enjoying the weather. And the police pulled up beside them and hopped out of their cars, and I stopped. Because I am a concerned citizen, and I wanted to see just how they were going to address them. Thankfully, they eventually just walked over and, you know, started a conversation with them. And usually what they try to do is to make them, you know, believe. But why don't they have a right, if they're not causing a problem in the community, why don't they have a right to talk to one another? Why is that a problem? But anyway, as uh, Wendy said, my name is Deshola. I have an organization that I co-founded, which is called the Coalition Concerned Mothers. And what we do is we work with families who have been affected by either community violence, police brutality, or mass incarceration, while also advocating for legislative changes. And so the reason why I started the program, that organization, is because I didn't see any programs in the D.C. area that serve people that look like me. There are many organizations that are out here, but I didn't see anybody who represented me. So I said, you know, I, I know if I'm feeling, you know, a, a loss about this whole idea, then there are other mothers who are feeling this. And so I got together with another powerful young lady by the name of Miriam Gray Hopkins, and we decided to form the Coalition of Concerned Mothers. The reason why I did that is because I lost my 24-year-old son, August the 21st, 2013, to community violence. It is coming up on five years. 
My son was shot in his back walking home to charge his cell phone. My son was not a thug. He was just walking home. And someone shot him in his back with a 9mm 13 round clip. It's taken a long time. I'm still healing. Doing this work helps me heal. And I knew that if I had started an organization, that it would help other mothers heal. And so that's what we did. I usually deal with the community violence side. Miriam deals with the uh, police brutality side. And we have a mother located in Buffalo, New York, who deals with the mass incarceration side. Well, let me just say one more other thing. Um, if you all care to join us, I'm organizing something for the mothers on the 26th of August at 2.30 at Haynes Point, if anybody cares to join us, just to come down. We're asking that you bring a balloon and just help us, you know, support us by throwing some solidarity and come and help us listen to some of our stories. And we're going to have spoken word and we're going to release some balloons in honor of our children's lives. Amen. And we're doing it near the water because there's a lot of spirituality near the water. You know, water changes the forms of things. So that's why we're having it near the water because that's a form of spirituality. It's what we need. My name is Jess Alejandra. Yeah. So hi, my name is Alejandra. I am a Mijenta member and actually live here in D.C. I live in D.C. via Arizona, though. And um, I think I wanted to come here and share, first of all, uh, I wanted to thank the whole DC community, all of y'all that threw down uh, when I got arrested. The Department of Homeland Security took, kidnapped me again for the second time in my adult life, uh, and I was in a private detention center for almost two months. And I already had spent there two years in a private detention center. So I think my experience with feeling safe has been informed by living in Arizona where the police stops you and Border Patrol is also there, uh, where you get pulled over and deported for having dark tint in your window you get racially profiled where you get pulled over and asked for your paperwork and your documentation for immigration so criminalization is something that I know very well just for a technicality they're trying to deport me still um, I've been facing this for eight years so safety for me is is also uh, organizing sisterhood the lucha is still continuing I'm only out on bond um, I have court again December 12th so right now really uh, challenging ICE and the Department of Homeland Security and abolishing, talking about abolishing ICE. Who here has heard about abolish ICE? Yeah. Right, I mean, abolish ICE is F the police, right? It's F12, it's all the same, chingadera. Um, they've been, you know, doing this to black and brown bodies for a really, really long time. So it's really, really dope that people have gravitated toward, towards that abolishing ICE. And I think we can do it. Y'all think we can do it? Yeah. Okay, and really quick, um, who speaks Spanish here? Do we got Spanish speakers? Yes, so this is gonna be really great. I wanna introduce y'all to a chant that mi gente does. Mi gente! Presente! I do it for my people. I do it for my people. Yo lo hago por mi gente. I'm gonna do it one more time. I do it for my people. I do it for my people. Yo lo hago por mi gente. Yo lo hago por mi gente. Dope. A lot of people don't think of the event in Charlottesville last year. They don't remember there being a big Black Lives Matter presence there, you know, a lot of anti-racist, anti-fascist demonstrators, but Black Lives Matter is playing a big part this year in D.C. So tell me about that and tell me about the experience you've had working with the movement. 
Yeah, people don't think of, you know, black, especially Black Lives Matter, um, getting involved in these things, but black folks in general. Um, but D.C. has a history of chasing the Klan, white supremacists out, you know, out of D.C. in 1982. That's exactly what they did. And I think for us, it's really important to recapture and revisit history of black D.C. that's often forgotten because there was a reason that happened, right? It was about self-determination. This is about self-determination, saying, like, we may not be 50% of the population, but we haven't given up the self-determination to determine what happens to us in our city. And especially for Native Washingtonians, um, I think it's really important that those of us who are not necessarily from here also take that up as a duty. So when white supremacists are coming, I mean, we realize that whether they have uniforms on or not, that it's our duty to resist them, right? And I think that there's a way, a solidarity that's very unique and resilient when black folks come together and say, like, this is the way we show up. You know, we encounter and resist and are affected by white supremacy all the time, right? These are, this is white supremacy in in the most raw form is folks who are coming with violence on their minds who and hatred and rage but then expect to be protected by the state to do that. You saw that with talks about possible metro. You know when they come here they have huge security um, and for us the opposite of that is when we're in the streets fighting white supremacy here in D.C. every day there's no protection. It's protected by the same people, right? It's protected by the state. Um, so to fight the state is protected by the state and then the thing that as a nation America is supposed to be against is still protected by the state, right? And so, you know, it was, it's just incredibly important for us to also make sure that black folks and black D.C. is centered with the other people who are organizing, with white or, white-led organizations in D.C. who, you know, we know and are, you know, anti-fascist, do anti-racism work. But to say that's one part of it, but to center the most marginalized folks is the only way this actually works, right? And the other part, it was really important to us, is that after Charlottesville, some of the white supremacists went to black neighborhoods to basically trap them into a confrontation. And so we also know that about two years ago in my neighborhood, in Southeast Anacostia, there was a truck that was driving through our neighborhoods with, like, Confederate flags and, like, one of the guys had a rifle. And so what we know is that's also possible. And what we know is that the police are not going to be here for us for that, right? It's not gun recovery. It's not marijuana arrest. So we also know that we won't be protected in that sense. And so our communities won't be protected. And also we just don't talk about white supremacy in the form of like white folks with rage here in D.C. because it's not a thing that we see every day, right? I think we also live in kind of a utopia where we think that's only other places and I think we forget that like here in the 7th District of MPD where they, a supervisor and two officers got suspended for wearing white supremacist shirts that they all had. And so we're not that far removed from any of these things. A lot of people probably don't know about that issue or that incident. So tell us about that. Right. So MPD has a group of officers called a power shift. And so between the power shift and the gun recovery unit, there was a t-shirt that they had created. And on this t-shirt, it has kind of like a grim reaper looking person or character. And you see 
it says the word power shift, but the O is a sun cross. And the sun cross is the same symbol that you see, the red symbol you see on Klan uniforms. And then it also says underneath, it says the 7th District. And it says, let me see your waistband, Joe. And so that's huge for us because the jump out squads in D.C., that is what they say to justify the stop and frisk that are often illegal and often brutal. So to not only normalize like the white supremacist symbols, but then to also connect that to the violence that they inflict regularly um, is something that can't be ignored. Yeah. And then finally, you know, I spoke to one of the other organizers for last week's show and about how the whole organizing effort on Facebook had been taken down by Facebook and characterized as some type of Russia bot. And I found it so incredible on so many different levels because, but ultimately what that did is interfere with organizing against these fascist neo-Nazi groups coming here. It hurt the groups that were trying to organize and counter-protest. So what kind of impact did that have? And and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I actually was the person who accepted the invite for Black Lives Matter DC. And so when that came out, I think everybody had mixed reactions because that kind of an action affects us very differently. So when that whole Russia Facebook thing came out last year, um, one of the biggest... It was last week, right? yeah, Yeah, but the original last year when they first knew about it was that a lot of the Black Lives Matter stuff was caught up in that. Um, So it was very easy for people to just run with the story, but we had never been asked or talked to, and Facebook never actually said like we were bad or this was bad, but it was automatically assumed. And so what it did is then for the next two days, we spent all that time basically proving that we existed. And so you had supporters like, ah, this doesn't sound right. And so what you do is you knock the confidence off of hundreds of thousands of people who were supporters and you have to start from the ground up because when you when you when you close the account it's not like you can recontact the exact people so it essentially wiped out all of our organizing efforts to that far on Facebook now we have been organizing and, pub- and publicizing off Facebook way before that but specifically i mean that's a specific a large percent of people who were interested in, in our event, in our coalition. So, yeah. You know, people, RSVP, all of that. So when they shut it down, we're not connected to those people anymore. That's a big blow to confidence for folks who are coming to something that is already scary or people don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So it seems to me, like, especially with this latest move by the government and connecting Facebook with the FBI and the Atlantic Council, that really dissent is what is coming under attack. I mean, dissent from the left. Like you said, they're almost, they were getting ready to provide protection on the metro for these neo-Nazis coming here, but is that what you see from where you work and what you're trying to do? Absolutely. You know, that's another thing that's always been happening. So, like, the Center for Media Justice, Black Lives Matter, the Movement for Black Lives, have been in, like, constant communication with Facebook about the ways that they interact with activists, especially on the left, but most especially with black activists, right? That we get taken down for the most regular kinds of conversations but when we report other people death threats, all of those things, they don't get taken down. And there's no real justification while they have these 
huge, long documents about what their algorithms are and you know how they do that, they're not consistent. And so it's not the first time, but it's getting more serious. And I think the thing that really stuck with us is how fast the media and the rest of the world assumed um, not only just assumed, but ran with the narrative that Facebook gave them. There was no scrutiny. There was no, I mean, it literally, we were getting calls from reporters, like, as soon as Facebook released the statement. Okay. All right, well, we'll see you out there on, on the weekend. That was April Goggins, core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC, speaking at this year's Night Out for Safety and Liberation. When we come back, Voices of more activists organizing counter-protests to the August 12th gathering of neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan, and other right-wing organizations. Stay with us. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital on pacifica radio i'm esther Averam. and as we go to broadcast with this show on friday august 10th 2018 there is the kickoff of two days of counter protests against the unite the right to rally planned for sunday in front of the white house the rally by neo-nazis white supremacists and other right-wing organizations is marking one year since their first rally of unity held in charlottesville virginia during which they attacked anti-fascist and anti-racist demonstrators over two days, killing activist Heather Heyer and injuring dozens more. A broad coalition of left, progressive, and faith organizations is taking part in this weekend's counter-demonstrations. And joining me to discuss further anti-fascist organizing in D.C. is Andrew Batcher, an organizer with the Shut It Down D.C. Coalition, and Michael Stark, longtime community organizer and also a member of the D.C. Shut It Down Coalition. And I want to first ask you, Michael, about why you're participating in organizing these counter-protests for Sunday. Some people, even people on the left, want to avoid the whole situation or they think it's better to ignore them. 
Right. I think history tells us anything. It's that the right wing and racists don't just go away when they're ignored. There's a profound and deep history of racism in this country, in the United States, and it's continually being manufactured as both as an idea and as a practice in the U.S., and this is something that we need to be vigilant about. But when the confidence of these elements rises, you know, because, of course, of, of our, our president, uh, Donald Trump, who's actively organizing these elements through his speeches and his hateful rhetoric, when these folks feel that it's safe and that they can actually come out of the shadows and actually assert themselves as a public and visible agenda, it's really important that the community stand up, be visible, be counted, and to try to isolate, marginalize, and push them back under the rock where they came from. And Andrew, what Michael said made me think of another issue, and that is not just these major kind of unite the right rallies. We had the slaying of the Bowie State student by a white supremacist. And I heard another report about a a black man, an African man being attacked by some type of uh, white supremacist just recently here in D.C. So it's reminding me about the these other aggressions that aren't necessarily connected to these major events, but that are being perpetrated by these like kind of lone wolf characters. So in doing this anti-fascist organizing, what have you seen and what have you experienced in terms of the, the lengths that, that these organizations will go to to be violent? So absolutely, these are very dangerous times and, those, and these are very dangerous elements. And they're not necessarily lone wolf either. Trump and Trump's control of the state is absolutely a threat and definitely emboldening these white supremacist demonstrations, which also further emboldens acts of violence. You ask about my personal experience. We do keep track of this and act in solidarity with Black Lives Matter actions and actions criticizing the police state in the killing of black and brown people also keeping track of what white supremacists do who are not part of the state. But you asked for my own personal experience, and, you know, for example, I was in the intersection when the car came in and hit the counter-protesters back in Charlottesville last year. So this violence is very real, and it's a threat, and that we need to act strong against it, and we need to do what we can to both show that there's a strong community opposed and also to disrupt it. So... Michael, in preparing for today's show, I remember that Charlottesville was not actually the first time that we heard those chants during the Tiki Torch March. And I'm going to play a clip um, from last June on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And it's when they were saying, you will not replace us. We are fighting to be powerful again in a sea of weakness and hopelessness. That is our battle. Thank you very much. You will not replace us. 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 Thank you all for coming. This is the beginning. Let's meet a year from now. Let's have 10,000 people. On that clip, the person you hear leading the crowd is Richard Spencer. And so I'm wondering, in retrospect, you know, was D.C. and these other so-called free speech rallies that were happening around the country, a warm-up for Charlottesville. This action at the Lincoln Memorial was definitely a dress rehearsal for Charlottesville. 
And there were groups that organized actions in the city in response to that uh, ugly display at, at the Lincoln Memorial, both on site at the Lincoln Memorial and in another location in D.C. to oppose it. But uh, unfortunately, the response wasn't as large and the turnout wasn't as great as it should have been. And because of that, I think the, the, the Nazis were emboldened and took that next step. Effectively, they, you know, they had a successful event and they were in large ignored. And the, one of the direct results was, was the, uh, the Charlottesville display and the death of Heather Heyer. So I think that's just a dramatic example that just ignoring them won't go away, although activists didn't completely ignore them. But sadly, at that uh, Lincoln Memorial, I think there was as many as like 250 Nazis marching around, uh, and there was uh, only about the equivalent number of counter-demonstrators and a bunch of bewildered uh, tourists uh, at the Lincoln Memorial wondering what was going on. But I think this just shows there's an immense sentiment against this kind of hateful display, but it needs to be mobilized and organized in to, to put it in its rightful place. Richard Collins, who was killed on the campus of the University of Maryland, a Bowie State student, his death should have been a, a wake-up call for everybody in Maryland and, and across the country. We have a commissioned officer, a young man just starting his life, that was murdered on, I believe it was like on Memorial Day or certainly Memorial Day weekend. And yet there was nothing in terms of a broad response. There were, of course, organizers. Uh, there was a, a, an incredibly powerful event that happened at Plymouth Congregational uh, that brought together University of Maryland students and anti-racist organizers to talk about Richard Collins, to memorialize that, and also to, to talk about how to not give in to the terrorism of his death, but to basically to use it as an organizing opportunity and, or, and to reverse the, the climate of fear and instead use it to try mm -hmm. to push back uh, against these racists. So we're trying to build on those efforts, and I think that's why it's so important to come out on, on August 12th. And Andrew, I remember actually that same day of the Lincoln Memorial rally, there was another protest outside the offices of the Metropolitan Police Department. And I think you may have been active in that uh, action. And, and this was related to the assault and even rate of J-20 demonstrators at Trump's inauguration. And I'm wondering about, you know, given the actions of the MPD during J-20, the criticized, relaxed response of the police in Charlottesville, and even recent incidents around the country where counter-protesters are being attacked by the police and not the Nazis, you know, what are your thoughts about the role of police in these actions and this organizing? Yeah, Police and fascists make sensible allies. Fascists are, are folks who want to see a strong police state that persecutes folks like people of color, people without a lot of money, um, criminalizes a lot of people, immigrants, etc. But fascists do not you know, seek to do this by themselves. They seek to have the state do this for them, and they generally are big supporters of the cops. And all of this is happening also in the context of a lot of police criticism and scrutiny related to police killings of black men and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of criticism that's been going on. So police have a long history of protecting Nazis and not the protesters who are going against them. So this is not surprising. This is a continuation of a constant trend and I mean there's an old there's an old phrase you know cops and clan go hand in hand huh. many cops have also been in the clan 
And yeah, uh, a repeat of something like J20 or what happened in Portland is something that we are that we want to do everything that we can to avoid. And to both of you, yeah, I just saw the documentary put out by a ProPublica uh, AC Thompson reporter um, documenting hate. And one of the real disturbing things in it is actually documenting how one of these people active in Charlottesville assaulting uh, demonstrators, taking part in, you know, beating people, uh, pro- uh, counter protesters, was actually in the Marine Corps <laughs> at the time. And because of the reporting and investigation that he did, this person was discharged from the military. But it really took a reporter working independently to make this happen. Uh, Similarly, another person active in Charlottesville, and not only in Charlottesville, but at other white supremacist rallies where there was violence, you know, active in assaulting people, was a uh, working for a defense contractor. And so I want to get your thoughts about the people that you're opposing, really. Are these people who you find are just generally integrated into society and could be integrated into the military and police, and there's no real effort to really investigate this? Absolutely. If you look at, like, Facebook pages, for example, that post a lot of kind of alt-right sort of stuff, there's oftentimes a police and military connection. And also, Michael, did you have a comment? Yes, I think that's the not-so-hidden secret about who these Nazis and fascists are. Instead of being poor people or working people, as they're often described or, you know, portrayed, in fact, a lot of them are middle-class and upper-middle-class professionals, people with a, a complete twisted view of how the world should work, how it should serve them and their interests. And that, that look to kind of gather and organize around this twisted sense of how they're being abused and hurt. So you had mentioned the they will not replace this chant. It's just flipping reality on its head to say that upper middle class goon squads, uh, that they're somehow the powerless. Uh, instead, uh, they are a power, a powerful and they're trying to reassert their control and, and reassert and double down on their sense of privilege and power over the rest of us, uh, working people and oppressed and minority communities. So I think it's important to kind of point out like how these people are just twisting reality and duping others uh, into the sense of victimization of, of white men in the society uh, when they really are just delivering hate and terror to all communities. You know, it's funny that you actually mentioned that because in terms of preparing for the show, I also saw kind of a list of the different types of groups. And one of the groups is like anti-communist or anti-Marxist. So it's not necessarily about race, but it's really countering people who have a Marxist view, whether they be socialists, whether they be communists. And it reminded me that this particular splinter group or, you know, within that coalition of the right is really doing a lot of work right now for the 1% in terms of countering progressives who want to, you know, fight for a more egalitarian society a society where there's not so much wealth inequality, healthcare for all, you know, jobs, no discrimination, you know, like everyone has a right to live. And that sort of uh, mentality that springs from Marxism and that springs from a focus on the workers and, and the right of workers. So have you run across those ideas in terms of countering these Nazis? And do you find that that's a growing portion of the fascist movement? Yeah, Esther, I'm really glad that you brought that up. 
So we sometimes get claimed, we doing anti-fascist work, sometimes get the claim that we're like funded by Soros. This is something that's repeated in right-wing media a lot. Total fabrication. But there's a lot of right-wing groups that you can trace to being funded by, being funded by the Koch brothers or by, who was it, who funded Bannon again, the Mercers. And, right. um, and Richard Spencer, who was kind of a figurehead of this movement for a time, was funded by this rich publishing guy, William Regnery. I mean, the, the wealthy definitely have an interest in sort of fomenting this, this fascist, persecutorial, reactionary energy. And, and this is also what Trump represents, who also oftentimes is kind of taken out of the story. You know, I found it really funny. People talked about Trump being independent from, like, money and interest. Well, he is money and interest in and of himself, <laughs> right? So, right? So absolutely, I think there's a, a wealthy stream pushing this. If I could pile on a little bit, Jason Kessler, the organizer of the uh, Unite the Right to rally that's coming to D.C. on the 12th, he tweeted immediately after Heather Heyer was murdered in Charlottesville that she was a Marxist and she deserved the payback that she got celebrating her death. And yeah, that's what they want to do. They want to portray anybody that's, you know, resisting and fighting for equality, fighting for better jobs, fighting for <laughs> the dignity and rights of, of all workers as somehow foreign and alien and, and having no place here and actually uh, that it's their legitimate targets for violence. Um, and that's exactly the role that these right-wing militias and fascist thugs uh, play, uh, both historically and now, is, is basically to be a, a source of violence and terror against uh, working people and uh, minority communities, uh, to keep them in their place and their heads down in order to, to preserve power and, and to preserve profits for the tiny 1%. Now, the, the, the 1%, of course, doesn't always sort of like play the, the fascist card. In fact, there's, you know, there's clearly a kind of an open debate. But uh, I think that's why it's, it's, it's important to, to smash these organizations, to put them in their place, to marginalize them while they're still small. Because if, uh, uh, if they're shown to be a, a credible and an effective force, then I think that they, we, we could find a situation where uh, their backers double down uh, and support them even more. We can't be passive or, or think that this is a fight that, that we've won somehow in the, in the 1940s because it's a fight that's very much still alive. Yeah, I know. And I, I know I'm going to have to start to, to wrap this up. But when you really look at the increased militarization of our society, the fact that both the Democrats and the Republicans just approve massive amounts of increase in budget for the Pentagon, we do have the danger of empowering more that kind of military policing wing, which basically further empowers this way of thinking. Sure. I think there is a, a direct connection between, um, you know, uh, American empire and the fascist, these white supremacists in the street. I think there's an active selling job that Trump is trying to do and his supporters in a section of the ruling class that is trying to convince, you know, people in this country that the way to address the, the declining living standards and, and working standards for, for working people is to double down on empire and reassert American you know, dominance over the world as a way to improve working conditions in this country. Of course, that's a complete lie, right? That more money that's put into the Pentagon, that means less money for schools, job training, 
uh, the more they're able to impoverish workers abroad and knuckle the world economy under their thumb, the more that they'll be able to leverage against decent working conditions and wages. And, you know, so the main proponents for an aggressive approach to empire are the same ones who are trying to roll back healthcare initiatives and production of workers here. But there's an ideological game that's being played. I um, mean, we have to resist it. We have to say that, no, we, ne- we don't need to be doubling down on empire. We need health care at home. We need schools at home. And we need to, you know, we need this instead of um, doubling down on, on racism, sexism, and, and, and oppression, not only around the world, but, but also at home uh, as a path to try to restore profitability, that that's going to somehow help us. Uh, instead, we need to actually unite as, as working people, uh, gay, straight, black, white, you know, um, across all divisions and assert our, our rights that everybody deserves a decent home, a decent uh, job, and a decent life to, uh, in a world to raise their kids because our, our lives depend upon it. And fighting against the Nazis on August 12th is part of that fight. It's a part of the fight against empire and the fight for a better world. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to have to leave it there. Uh, I've been joined by Andrew Batcher, an organizer with Shut It Down D.C., the Shut It Down D.C. Coalition, and also Michael Stark, a longtime community organizer and also a member of the D.C. Shut It Down Coalition. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, so. Thank you very much. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks again to Gerald Horn, Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and thanks again to DC activists Mike Stark, Andrew Batcher, and April Goggins. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Kendrick Lamar, Feel. James Brown, I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing, and Navasha Dea, It's Still About Freedom. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. If you're on Facebook, please like our page at On The Ground Show. Our page is the sign with the picket sign and the green letters that say On The Ground. We're also on Twitter and on iTunes. We are at WPFW On The Ground. A special shout-out to our newest listeners at KPFT in Houston. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.